Greetings, family. It's such a wonderful thing to be in the household of faith and to worship with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. If you don't know me, I'm Pastor Gordon. And let's take a moment and let's prepare our hearts for God's word. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would illuminate us by your spirit and show us yourself. Show us yourself in your word. Change us by your spirit and give us a taste of your love. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Welcome. If you're a visitor and you're joining us today, we're working through the Gospel of John together as a church. And so we come now to John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. So I'd encourage you, if you have a Bible, to open up or turn it on and scroll or page to the appropriate spot. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. We're going to be working through this. And from the start, I need to acknowledge that um, I was really helped in my study of this passage and in my phrasing of a few of the points by Pastor Kevin DeYoung. Some of you may be familiar with him. He gave a, a message on the passage, and I just need to sort of cite that. I don't intend this to be a retread of his message, but there's going to be one similarity uh, at the, right at the outset. So, and that's the main idea of this passage. There's two ways that I thought of expressing the main idea, but Kevin perhaps put it better. And his way, the first way, the pastoral way, is to say, Jesus loves you and he knows what he's doing in your life. Jesus loves you, and he knows what he's doing in your life. And the other way you can tell this one is probably not Kevin DeYoung's, it's probably Pastor Gordon. (laughs) The other way is more theological. Seeing and savoring the glory of Christ always abounds to our greater good. Seeing and savoring the glory of Christ always abounds to our greater good. In this passage, we see Jesus deliberately and lovingly place the glory of God and consequently the greater good of his disciples ahead of their immediate physical relief. We see Jesus deliberately but lovingly place the glory of God and consequently the greater good of his disciples ahead of their immediate physical relief. And ultimately, as we look through this whole passage, I mean, obviously the passage is meant to be treated as one whole. We're just taking a little bit of it. We will see Jesus reveal that his power to save and to heal eclipses our natural capacity for hope. One of the elements that's emphasized in the passage is that even Mary and Martha, who have a deep, loving trust in Jesus Christ, can't quite conceive of what Jesus intends to do with this situation because God's ability to heal and to save beggars our capacity for hope. So the story of Lazarus's resuscitation, or as we often say, his resurrection, teaches us several wonderful truths. 
But the first is that seeing the glory of God, seeing the glory of Jesus Christ is a better and more enduring good than escaping our pain. Seeing the glory of Jesus Christ is a better and more enduring good than escaping our pain. And that's what I mean by that theme that I phrased out as the glory of Christ always abounds to our greater good. So as we start thinking about this story, I want to ask you a question. How would your life be different if you knew for certain that Jesus loved you and knew what he was doing in your life? How would your life be different if you knew for certain that Jesus loved you and knew what he was doing in your life? What would be different if you had unshakable confidence that Jesus really loved you and was certainly doing what was best for you? As confident as you are that when you go to eat your favorite food that it will taste good to you again just like it did last time. As confident as you are that the sun will rise tomorrow, that when you swing your legs over the bed, that the, that the ground will hold your weight, that when I say O-H, man, that was scary. <laughs> so, what if you were that confident about Christ and his love for you and that he knew what he was doing in your life. What would change? Well, with that, let's step into the text. I have five observations, and good news for all of us, the fifth one is mostly application, so it's kind of like four, but we have five observations. The first one is Jesus truly loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Jesus truly loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. John rarely sets up characters with as much care as he does here. Normally we just like, oh, and here's this dude, Nicodemus, he's, you know, important guy, and they're gonna talk. Like, we, we zoom in really quickly. But Lazarus, he says, is the brother of Mary and Martha. And then he's like, not just any Mary, by the way, the Mary, the one who will anoint Jesus' feet in chapter 12. We haven't even heard that story yet, but the story was so well known in the early church that John, all he had to do is be like, that Mary, you know, that one. <laughs> and the Martha, you all know the Martha that he's talking about, right? The one who is so full of concern, who's painstakingly taking care of Jesus and his disciples. And just an aside, I have to correct this. By the way, every time you see a double name in the Bible, so Martha, Martha, it's never a term of exasperation. It is never a term of exasperation. Think of when David says, Absalom, Absalom. He doesn't, that's not exasperation. He says, Absalom, Absalom, my son. And when Jesus says, Martha, Martha, it's not a term of exasperation. It's a term of endearment. Martha, Martha, you are concerned with many things. So these are those, these are those people. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We know that they're a family of great means. 
They have property. They have wealth. Remember, it's Mary who brings the perfume that is valued at a year's wages and breaks it over Jesus, which incites a great discussion. She's the one who has access to that. They have, they have grounds and lands. They are providing for Jesus and his disciples. Martha, who is so concerned, is probably not just concerned with putting out cheese and crackers for 12 guys. She is providing for Jesus' disciples, which at various points in Jesus' ministry is not a few people. So they have great means. We don't know exactly how they come into having those means, but they were a family of prominent value. You can see they employ mourners to come. They say, when the Jews heard, they all come. This is a family of great estate. But John wants to point out that Jesus is not just noticing them because they're rich, not just noticing them because they've done a lot of stuff for him. It says he loved them. They were personal friends. John says twice in verses 3 and 5, Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Nor was this only sentiment. This wasn't just the sort of love that arises uh, from just shaking a hand. It's, it's the kind of love that arises from countless meals, from week-long visits, from hours of conversation, from trusting your worldly affairs into someone else's hands. And I hope that we all have the joy of some kind of fellowship that approximates that. And while I don't hope this, I imagine that you also, by consequence, know what it feels like when you lose that. When one of your dearest friends dies. Friends, sometimes we may imagine that Jesus somehow could not love or feel as we love or feel. And while it would be wrong to limit our idea of what it means for Jesus to love simply or merely to what it means for us to love, it would also be equally wrong for us to remove it from him entirely. To say like, well, yes, Jesus loves you, but it's nothing at all like what you think love is. It's, it is different. But it's not foreign. Jesus felt true, heartfelt affection for his beloved disciples. He loved them. In many cases, and we're even told explicitly, Jesus treated his disciples as closer to his heart than his own biological family. This is important context. And I, before we go on, friend, I want to remind you that if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you are connected by faith to his life and to his death, if you have repented of your sins, if you have trusted in his grace, if his spirit breathes in your heart, then Jesus loves you. He loves you as intensely as he loved Mary, as intensely as he loved Martha, as faithfully as he loved Lazarus, Jesus would say to you, Martha, Martha. He would say to you, Mary, Mary. He would say, you are the one that he loves. If the messengers in heaven report to Christ of the goings-on of earth, they would say something like, Lord, the one whom you love has died. For the psalmist says, precious in the eyes of the Lord are the death of his saints. He notices you. He knows you. 
And so the second important thing that you need to gather, one, Jesus loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus truly. The second important thing that we need to see is that Jesus sees things differently. His love is a little bit different, but he sees things very differently. Jesus sees things from an eternal perspective. You'll see that in verse 4. Look at verses 3 and 4. So the sisters, Mary and Martha, sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, at first glance, Jesus' response seems to indicate that he, in his divine foreknowledge, as the Son of God, knows that this sickness will not result in Lazarus' death. That's awfully what it looks like, right? This sickness will not result in death. And though we have already seen Jesus raise up even the most debilitatingly disabled persons, our thoughts are probably and unintentionally limited to the horizon of this life. Unless you're really well-schooled in this story, if you can just imagine yourself reading this story for the first time, if you're at all like me, you would probably not imagine that Jesus' solution is to raise a man from the dead. You've been conditioned. You know, like, he's going to go heal him. He might come at the last moment, but he's going to heal him because Jesus can heal anything. I've seen him. He's healed a blind man. He healed a beggar. He he heals everybody. So so he can heal Lazarus. And if he said this illness isn't going to result in death, well, then. So when we hear Jesus say this illness does not lead to death, we think, oh, good. Jesus has decided Lazarus won't die from this sickness. But that's not what Jesus is focused on. He's not even looking at that. (laughs) He's peering through the illness into the greater purpose of God. He says, this illness does not lead to death. He almost sort of sets it aside and says, this circumstance, this reality, what's happening right now is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus sees everything through the lens of God's glory. That's what I mean by Jesus sees things from an eternal perspective. It's not that he's, un, he's, not, that he's not concerned with the immediate circumstances. He just sees through them. His interpretation of our circumstances and the events of our lives is framed and informed by his purpose to work all things together for the display of his glory. If we want to understand God's dealings with us in this life, we need to begin by remembering that he does truly love us. And secondly, he sees things differently. Then the third thing follows quick after that. Jesus is not indifferent to human suffering. So he loves you, but he sees things differently. That doesn't mean, however, that he's indifferent to human suffering. We should be quick to say that just because Jesus sees things from an eternal perspective does not mean that he's indifferent. Far from it. Look at verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. The love of God for his people and his purpose to display his glory are not mutually opposed. 
that God loves you and that God intends to display his glory in your life and in all things for the good of his glory are not mutually opposed. They're not incompatible. That Jesus sees Lazarus and his family's circumstances through the lens of God's greater glory does not indicate that Jesus does not care about their situation. Far from it. Instead, it lays the foundation for one of John's repeated and progressively intensifying themes in this gospel. John is showing us again and again an increasing intensity that it is for our greater good that Jesus always seeks to display his greater glory. Did you hear that? It is for our greater good that Jesus always seeks to display his greater glory. When his glory abounds, our good increases. These two things are tied together. The glory of Christ always abounds to our greater good. Now, each of us goes through life with great difficulty. And I mean that. Each of us goes through life with great difficulty in one way or another. And for some of us, that difficulty seems greater than for others of us. But I tell you that for each person with their own difficulties, their difficulties to them are great. It would be wrong to imagine that Jesus is unaware of your suffering. I find it interesting that Jesus decides to wait two days and the disciples sort of press him, like, are you serious? You're going to go back there? And, and Jesus says, he's already dead. He knew. It wasn't like a mistake. It wasn't like, it wasn't like trying to come to a party just that much late, like where you're, a popular amount of late, like you're the cool person because you showed up five minutes late. Like Jesus is not trying to make a, a, a social statement. He is purposefully, deliberately waiting. That seems odd. But that means he's not unaware of your suffering. Secondly, it also means he's not indifferent to it. John emphasizes Jesus loved Lazarus. When they write to him, they say, the one whom you love. He, he says over and over again, Jesus loved him. Now, as a pastor, I have a privilege of going and visiting folks, and sometimes when they are in great pain. And while I wish I could say that I had an equal sense of urgency for every visit, I have to be honest with you, it's not true. It simply isn't true. I, just like you, or I imagine, I guess I shouldn't project, but I assume that we are actually more alike than, than unlike, I am readier to go and visit those people that I know who I've shared a meal with, who I've spoken to, taken a walk with, and in a more palpable daily way loved. Now, yes, I do love all of God's children. And yes, God strengthens me to see to the needs of this family of faith as best as I may. In short, yes, Lord willing, I will come visit you. Don't worry. But my point is here that it is easier for us to experience urgency when the person concerned is someone we love. So do you see how John is raising every conceivable stake here? This was a prominent family. Look, all the Jews came. They were a rich family. Jesus, in a sense, owed them social obligation. They had provided for his needs. They even told him. They sent someone to him and said, please, the man that you love, he is ill. And Jesus himself felt a personal degree of urgency 
of all the people that Jesus would want to go heal, he's setting this up like, it should be Lazarus. (laughs) John wants us to know for certain that Jesus loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He wants us to feel the suspense, the building tension by every worldly metric available Jesus should have dropped everything and gone to Lazarus. They were his patrons, a family of immense social standing, and most of all, he loved them. So it is clear that Jesus was not indifferent to their suffering, and that allows us to say that Jesus is not indifferent to ours. He knows your suffering. Therefore, point four, if Jesus delays, it is out of love for us and for his greater glory. Therefore, if Jesus delays, it is out of love for us and for his greater glory. In verses five and six, John touches on one of the fiercest struggles with doubt that I know from most Christians. How can it be that God loves me if he also allows me or others to suffer? How can it be that God loves me if he allows me or others to suffer? Jesus' decision to stay and not rush to Lazarus' side, which is a nearly four-day journey from Bethany. There are two Bethanies. This is the further Bethany. It would have taken a long time to get to Jerusalem. I mean, to get to Bethany from where he was. Um, was not because he did not love them, nor was it because he was incapable of helping them, nor was it because he was indifferent. It was because he loved them. Small words make big differences. Look at verses five and six again. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus so. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. Jesus loved them, so he waited. If you and I can resolve our hearts in agreement with those two sentences, Jesus loved them, so he waited, we will experience a world of good in our spiritual lives. And to help us embrace this idea, we need to remove at least a few obstacles. There's lots, but we're just going to pick a few. The first is the objection to the idea that Jesus, um, the reason that he waited was that he was afraid of retaliation. In short, that Jesus, while he was willing to heal a lot of people, he wasn't willing to put his life on the line to do it. But that's not true. It wasn't true that he didn't want to risk his life for a dying man. In verse 8, the, the disciples say, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going back there again? So we know that Jesus isn't afraid of the retaliation he might face if he goes to help Lazarus. His decision to wait has nothing to do with the fact that the Jews wanted to stone him and would be perfectly happy to do so two days from tomorrow as opposed to just today. Now, he doesn't delay for his own sake. Of all people, 
Jesus Christ does not delay for his own sake. He is willing to, and he does in human terms, risk his life in order to do the most good for his friend. See, God does not permit suffering in our lives because he's more concerned with his own well-being than our own. He doesn't say, man, it would really put me out to solve their problem of discomfort right now. And since I've got a pretty good party going on here, we're just, they're just going to have to deal. Like, it's not because it would put him out. No, if Jesus delays or if God permits suffering in our lives, it is because he loves us. And he seeks our greater good in the overflow of his greater glory. The second and probably the greater obstacle in our hearts is the idea that the glory of God seems to be at odds with our own well-being. In other words, it seems as though God can either be glorified or I can have something occur to my good. But my good and the glory of God don't go together. God can advance his own glory, in which case I suffer, or God cannot advance his own glory, in which case things go better for me. But these two things don't seem to go together. That it's not possible for God to act in the interest of his greater glory and at the same time to serve our greater good. But this simply arises from a mistaken notion about what love actually is. Because we are inclined to define love experientially based on how something or someone makes us feel rather than its ultimate good in our life. Anyone who has cared for a child or anyone who has undertaken responsibility for another human being, frankly, anyone who's even undertaken responsibility for any living creature of any kind, knows this. Intuitively, you understand this. For most of us, especially children, love, at least initially, means doing what gives me the most immediate comfort or happiness. For most of us, the way we process love initially is, that is, doing what gives me the most immediate comfort or happiness. Children may say something like, I wanted that toy. And because you did not get it for me right now, you do not love me. Or, I wanted to eat pizza, but because you have given me vegetables and rice, you do not love me. Or, I wanted to go to that party, but you insisted that I stay home. You must not love me. I have no interest in going to hear Sermon on the Lord's Day. You insisted that I come. You must not love me. I want to spend my money the way I want, but you say I mustn't. This is because we define love all too often as what gives us the most immediate and satisfying pleasure, what meets our basic desires. And that, incidentally, is how the modern sexual ethic can be wrongly associated with love. Because the idea is that love is giving someone what they want right then, that that's what love is. And as a consequence, if someone wants something and someone else is willing to give it to them, that must be love. But scripture doesn't define love that way. Godly love is a far different, far better, far more substantial, far more enduring matter than merely giving someone what brings about their immediate satisfaction. Again, anyone who's raised a small child knows that if, if I gave my small children what they wanted all of the time, that would not be to their ultimate good. 
true love works for another's eternal good. That's my working definition. True love works for another's eternal good. Love does not ignore present circumstances. It must see beyond them, just like Jesus does, right? He doesn't ignore those circumstances. He sees through them. Love must be discerning and prudent. You tell your child that they may not run into the street, not because you want to deprive them of the joy of running, but because that is not in the long-term interests of their well-being. And in this case, Jesus delays not because he is not concerned about death. Uh, Pastor John will be speaking about this in the weeks coming in verses 33 through 35. You see Jesus, when he sees and hears Lazarus' death, he is angry at death. It's not that Jesus doesn't care about death. Jesus cares a lot about death. He cares about death more than you or I have ever cared about death. No. No, he cares about death. And it's certainly not because he doesn't care. He delays because there's something more important at stake than Lazarus's physical life. There is something more important at stake than Lazarus's physical life. Love works for another's good. It serves them with their ultimate goal in mind. And while it is indeed true that the shining of the sun and the refreshment of the rain and the food on our tables and the clothes on our backs are all evidences of God's common love, yet they are not the chief evidences of his love. Please do not measure God's love for you by how much material comfort or success he gives you in this life. Please do not measure how much God loves you by how much comfort or material or success he gives you in this life. By such a metric, God hated his apostles and especially his own son. Instead, we should define love the way John defines it. And for once, you can go to that first place, and I know you're all thinking it, John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world. He loved the world in this way, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The goal of God's love, then, is eternal life. And then we ask, what is that? You should always ask, what is eternal life? It sounds good. What is it? John 17, 3 gives us a definition. Jesus, in speaking to his disciples, uh, speaking, says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. What is eternal life? To know God. Eternal life, the gift that cost the Son of God an agonizing death is to know God, to know him with increasing admiration, wonder, and joy eternally. That is eternal life. Eternal life is not Frisbee. Eternal life is not golf. Eternal life is not book groups. Eternal life is, is seeing and savoring Jesus Christ ever increasingly, moment by moment, forever. Seeing Jesus, knowing Jesus is the ultimate and inexhaustible good. It is what you were made for. It is the only thing that will ever satisfy you. 
Eternal life is God revealed in his glory, satisfying that cavernous longing that's in your heart that you're trying to fill up with whatever comes to hand, with television, internet, or whatever. In John 14, 21, Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Fancy language, show myself, reveal myself. I will disclose who I am to them, knowing God is eternal life. I, am, I know, I am belaboring the point, dear Christian. I'm belaboring the point because I believe this conviction has the power to revolutionize your life. God's love is not his sparing us suffering and death. That is not the chief form of God's love. His love is mainly in showing and giving us himself in all his majestic glory. Friend, at some point, all instruction must be put into practice if it is ever to mature into a skill. At some point, you have to let your apprentice hang the drywall. At some point, you have to let them hammer the nails. At some point, you have to let your new associate meet the new client. At some point, you have to let your child get on the bus or get in the car. And when they're 16, you have to give them the keys. Like, at some point, at some point, you have to send out and let it be applied. It's all well and good to talk about the idea that God and his glory are more valuable to you than life or comfort. It is, it is wonderful to talk about it, but for that faith to come alive, for that faith to mature, it has to be put into practice, which is why in verses 25 and 26, Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That is, here's the hammer, here's the nail. Hang the drywall. You can talk about, like, can I raise the dead? I think you can. He will, he will be raised on the last day. Am I the resurrection and the life? Do you believe this? If we are to truly grow in faith, if the glory of God is to become more precious to us than our own comfort, then Christ must allow, Christ must even send us to suffer. If Christ and his glory are to become more precious to us than our comfort, he has to put us in a situation where we face suffering and choose his glory. Jesus loves you. He knows what he's doing. Look again at verses five and six, but in the context now of verse 14. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. And jump to verse 14. Jesus comments on this decision. He says, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. God's love for us and his commitment to his own glory are not mutually exclusive. They are mutually dependent. 
for God to truly love us, he must show us himself. Fifth point, last point, mostly application. It is for our greater good that Jesus always seeks to display his greater glory. In other words, the glory of Christ always abounds to our greater good. I'm returning you to that first question. How would your life be different if you knew that Jesus loved you and knew what he was doing in your life? I'll offer two brief illustrations and then a series of hopefully helpful applications with a conclusion. The difference between a surgeon with a scalpel and a thief with a knife is basically skill and intent. The difference between a, a surgeon with a scalpel and a thief with a knife is basically skill and intent. But the palpable difference is trust. Both experiences are likely to involve pain, but when I submit myself to the care of a surgeon, I am trusting him or her that they know what they're doing and they're working for my good. I willingly submit to someone doing something to me that I would not let just anybody do if I didn't trust that they knew what they were doing and that they were doing it for my good, which we've defined here as love. The second illustration is that as a small child and even as a larger child, I was frightened and I was frightened of going to the store. I was frightened of purchasing something. I was frightened of telephones. I still am. I was frightened of public restrooms. I was frightened of basically the world. The world frightened me. <laughs> to do almost anything outside of my own home was frightening. But all you needed to do to calm me down was tell me that my dad was going to go with me. I would know deep down, sorry, I would know deep down in my heart that all would be well because my father loved me and he knew what he was doing. He does, by the way. Props to you, dad. And thanks. <laughs> Friend, as you step out into the world, the world is, whether you feel about it as scared as I often do, that's almost immaterial. You need to know that your heavenly father loves you and that he knows what he's doing. Calvin, one of my favorite commentators, helps me, and here I find his commentary helpful. He said, we are taught by his delay on his part, that we ought not to judge the love of God from the conditions which we see before our eyes. When we have prayed to him, he often delays his assistance, either that he may increase still more our ardor and prayer, meaning causing us to urgently desire and lean harder on him, or that he may exercise our patience, one of the fruits of the Spirit, or at the same time accustom us to obedience, to to do as he says, even when we don't have the reward. Let believers then implore the assistance of God, but let them also learn to suspend their desires if he does not stretch out his hand for their assistance as soon as they may think that necessity requires. For 
Whatever may be his delay, he never sleeps and never forgets his people. God, I love Calvin. <laughs> so a series of applications. How would your life change if you knew that Jesus loved you and that he knew what he was doing in your life? Some of us, probably most of us, spend an unholy amount of time wishing our circumstances were other than what they are rather than seeking and savoring the glory of God as it is revealed to us in them. I include myself in that. You can ask Pastor John. <laughs> he gets to hear it a lot. We insist in our heart that what we believe is God's delay is not a demonstration of love, but instead we think it is neglect when Jesus is actually saying, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Seven applications, real quick. One, learn to esteem knowing God as better than escaping your pain. Learn to esteem that knowing God is better than escaping your pain. Psalm 63, verse 3 says, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Secondly, remember how hard it is to wait for Christ's comfort in the midst of pain and suffering when you go to encourage others. Remember how incredibly hard it is when you are the one that is hurting and Christ seems to be delaying his answer. Oh, remember how hard that place is when you go to tell, oh, remember how hard that place is when you go to tell someone else, friend, look to Jesus. It's right to tell them to look to Jesus, but Remember, it's hard. Thirdly, encourage others by inviting them to fix their eyes not so much on their relief, but on the enduring value of Christ's glory and grace. And if you came to Sunday school this morning, you, you got it, like, 100%. <laughs> they did wonder, Pastor John did a wonderful job of leading us into seeing how our inheritance is so important. Fourth, feed your soul in times of rest on the richness of God's kindness and grace so as to build a store for the days when his light seems dim. All of us have days where it, it's, it's easier, there's more time, it's, it's more comfortable. We are not at odds with God. In those days, friend, drink in the mercy of God. Feed upon the richness of his goodness and grace because there will be days coming when you will wish for those days. In physical terms, I wasn't long into the pandemic before all of a sudden I realized, man, I really miss gathering and worshiping and singing with my brothers and sisters in Christ. It did not take long for that fast to become painful. So let's feed on the riches, the goodness, and the grace of God while we may. Fifthly, practice seeing the whole of your life as within God's providence and that his purpose is always for our good and for his glory. Sixthly, remember that God is neither indifferent nor captive to our suffering. He can see further and more accurately than our feeble hearts. And above all, seventh, continually look to the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, where God's unfailing love and power meet. Martha and Mary both come to Jesus they both say, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have been died, or my brother wouldn't have died. Where does Jesus take them? I am the resurrection and the life. He's like, he, he doesn't say, I'm sorry. He doesn't say, this really hurts. He, he draws them to himself. 
That's where we need to go. In that resurrection, see God's assurance that though for a while he does wait, he will not wait forever. The Lord will surely come at the last moment, but at the right moment. And we shall not all sleep as Lazarus did, but we shall all be changed. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Psalm 34 and 5 ends this well. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Amen? Let's pray. God, have mercy on the preaching of your word. And God, have mercy on your feeble, frail servants. Remember that we are made from dust. And the dust we shall return, that if you blow on the grass of the field, it just withers and dies. That but for your sustaining spirit, we have nothing and are nothing and go to nothing. So God, look on us instead in the countenance of your love and apply to us the salve of your sweet comfort that comes through knowing you. Lord, open the eyes of our heart to see things the way that you see them and to trust you so that we will know in the bottom of our heart that you love us and you know what you're doing. We trust you, Lord. In Jesus' name.